0: Well, hello and welcome to National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am very excited today uh, to bring what is going to be probably only our first of, I anticipate, several conversations in the months ahead about Adam Smith. And you say, why Adam Smith? Well, besides being widely regarded as the founder of classical economics and a key figure, particularly in American economic thought, but this is the... This year will be the 300th anniversary of his birth, and we intend uh, to do a lot at National Review Capital Matters around the theme of Adam Smith, and I anticipate there being ongoing discussion about his legacy uh, and contribution to both um, economic thought and moral philosophy. Uh, But our, our guest today has just written a brand new book called Adam Smith's America, Uh, Her name is Dr. Glory Liu, and she is an intellectual here in the United States uh, that is, in my mind, a very gifted writer who has done a wonderful job historically unpacking a lot about Adam Smith and a lot about the way in which people throughout American history, from the founders uh, throughout the 19th century, throughout 20th century, even into modern day, whether it be political or academic, different ways that people have interpreted and understood Adam Smith and exploring um, how that came to be. So Adam Smith's America by Glory Liu. I'm going to bring her on now, but I really encourage you to stay through the end because in my concluding thoughts, after I'm done with Glory, I want to share with you a couple takeaways that I think are important to the discussion. With that said, let me bring on our guest. So with that said, allow me to introduce a first-time guest to the Capitol Record, someone I'm really excited to have a conversation with. She was responsible for my very first book read of the new year, and what a book read it was. Please welcome to Capitol Record the author of Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. Welcome, Dr. Glory Liu. Glory, welcome to Capitol Record.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Um, It was, uh, uh, I don't know if they're going to have it posted or not by um, the day this podcast post, but the Acton Institute, um, it asked me to review your new book and I have since done so and uh, reviewed it quite favorably. Um, But the, uh, introduction to you came through this new book, and I'm really pleased that it did and grateful that you're joining us here on National Review's Capital Record. But maybe we can start off in this uh, year in which uh, Adam Smith will turn 300 years old. Um, What made you take on the task of writing a book about Adam Smith's legacy in American economic thought?
1: So I started this project as a graduate student when I was doing my PhD in political science. I'm a political theorist and and intellectual historian by training. And I had encountered Smith through various studies in the history of political thought. And in my field, Smith is really known as this Enlightenment thinker who wrote a number of works, not just The Wealth of Nations, but also The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I had also started exploring a lot of the recent scholarship that was characterizing Smith um, as somebody who cared deeply and was very concerned with themes like corruption and inequality and poverty and justice. And that struck me as really unique and very different from the popular perception of Adam Smith as this icon of laissez-faire economics. The 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 Adam Smith that you often see caricatured in think tanks, in public discourse and headlines and whatnot. And um, you know, somewhere along the way in my graduate studies, there's a story of a kind of um, <laughs> abandoned dissertation project, for instance, I'll maybe save for another conversation. But it, in my journey, I had this question that popped into my head about why did Smith become known as this icon of free market capitalism and not as this enlightenment social and political theorist? And... That question really stuck with me, and that's why I decided to write first a dissertation and ultimately this book.
0: And so, in the course of of reading the book, um, you know, I am a, a heavy reader and a pretty quick reader, and I wasn't able to read your book quickly because there was so much depth that I refused to uh, deprive myself of. I wanted to go slowly because what i found and i've been reading and studying adam smith since high school but i found that i was learning more about adam smith from your book well before you were getting to various conclusions and sort of new analysis on that um uh, how smith has become regarded in throughout american economic development but there was just a background to the analysis that was really quite illuminating um, and and it starts off with the way that the American founders, I believe, were I- interpreting both theory of moral sentiments and ultimately wealth of nations. And some of the content from John Adams from Alexander Hamilton was just fascinating to me. Comment a little on that disconnect for the founders between uh, his moral sentiments work and his. Wealth of Nations. It's hard for me to. I can understand the Chicago school and the Austrian school in 21st century thought how they would want to um, interpret various classical contributors, but particularly Smith, into our understanding of a free enterprise ideology. But how would the founders of been constricted, or, or not even constricted, but what would have been the driving forces at the time um, with the American Revolution, with the newness of the American experiment? I was just fascinated by how they interpreted those two works from Smith.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for the really generous comments on my work. And I'm glad that you got a lot out of it. Um, that's It's always nice for an author to hear. Um, Writing the chapter on the founding era was one of the hardest chapters to write, not only because the the work on the American Enlightenment period is so vast and so rich and so detailed and so thoroughly trodden, but also because I had to do a lot to set readers up to shed their expectations of what Smith's works are about. As you alluded to, a lot of people come to Smith through the lens of what is now known as, you know, kind of modern neoclassical economics, and so we, we, we assume that Smith is writing an economics textbook as if we were reading any other textbook for our classes in economics today, and that's not what Smith was doing in the 18th century. The Theory of Moral Sentiments is published in 1759, and it's making a contribution to a wider debate in moral philosophy at the time. Are humans naturally vicious, or I mean, naturally vicious and selfish, or are they naturally altruistic or benevolent? Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I assure you, it's not yeah. enough caffeine. Um, or um, um, the the question of um, whether morality is properly grounded in reason or in, or in sentiment that's what the theory of moral sentiments is doing. And Smith is responding to his teacher, Francis Hutchinson, as well as his best friend and chief intellectual locutor, David Hume, the Anglo-Dutch satirist Bernard Mandeville, right? There are just a host of characters who are shaping the debate around moral sentiments in the 18th century. And the Wealth of Nations is contributing to a very relatively new discourse called political economy, and political economy at the time that the founders are reading The Wealth of Nations in 1776 and afterward is not what we think of as classical economics, even though Smith is considered the founder of the field of classical economics. I think um, one, of the, one of the like best shorthand ways to think about how The Wealth of Nations would have been read in the 18th century while Smith was alive right, by his immediate audience is more like a conduct book for statesmen, for elite men in power who have access to um, shaping the institutions that would govern the state. So you have your Alexander Hamiltons, your James Madisons, your Thomas Jeffersons, reading The Wealth of Nations as a, a guidebook for how to manage the pocketbook of a new nation. And what The Wealth of Nations provides for American readers at the time is a very enlightened way to think about not only national wealth but the management of a new political economy right? the 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 dominant questions for americans right right after they gain independence and they're establishing a new nation is whether the country is gonna go the route of Great Britain and become a nation of manufacturers and international traders, or whether they're gonna kind of maintain this idyllic view of being an agricultural republic of self-sufficient farmers. And so on the one hand, you have people like Alexander Hamilton who are advocating former view. And on the other hand, you have people like Thomas Jefferson who are advocating the latter view, right? being a kind of republic of virtuous farmers. And and The Wealth of Nations is this wonderful book, A, written in English, (laughs) so that people who don't speak French and read the works of French political economists can access different and competing views of political economy and kind of managing a political economy. So they're not only getting information about competing views, but they're also getting Smith's views on the relationship between... Um, kind of commerce, manufacturers, and agriculture. And that's where Alexander Hamilton finds the best uses of Smith, right? He's using Smith's theory of the division of labor and how kind of the um, benefit to um, national wealth is increased because manufacturers benefit as well as farmers, right? It's not the kind of narrow-minded view that the physiocrats hold that national wealth only comes from the agricultural produce of the land, but that manufacturers and agriculture benefit together. And so he has this vision for the American political economy that's really grounded in not only a new theory of how national wealth is produced, but also a, a very kind of like activist vision of what the government can do in order to enhance um, d- domestic manufacturers. And that's a very very different view than somebody like Thomas Jefferson.
0: So that's um, that's kind of how how is it is it safe to say that that some of the tension in the way um, competing founders like Hamilton and Jefferson interpret and appreciate Smith. In other words, they both have an appreciation for Smith, but maybe with a different agenda. And the way in which some founders appreciate Smith is reflective of that very underlying tension between let's say, Northern manufacturing oriented, British friendly economic um, biases from Hamilton more finance friendly and, and whatnot versus the agricultural centered Jeffersonian vision of American life, and that they both found in Smith an ally if they were willing to be selective enough in what they in what they um, focused on.
1: Absolutely, and I think that that's a really important pattern that you've observed that carries through the reception of Smith all the way through the present day, that people can come to Smith with their pre-cooked ideas of what the American political economy ought to look like, and they find the resources in Smith to support that view. That said, what I think is so interesting about the founding era is that this is what I call kind of pre-canonization, right? Smith hasn't yet become known as the founder of economics. He's certainly important. He's very well respected. You know, people refer to him as like Dr. Smith. I mean, they would have done that with any any major author, but you know, th- th- this, is, this is a book that's well known. It sells well. Um, it's the fact that it's published in America, in an American edition, um, I believe in 1797 is is evidence that, you know, this was a book that to, to, to like worth undertaking the massive risk for producing and publishing an American edition for, with the hope that it's going to sell really well. So, so it's, it's in the American consciousness. And when I say American consciousness, it's really, I'm, I'm talking about kind of the, like the political and intellectual elite in the founding era who have access to not only traditional forms of political power and governing the state, but are also shaping the kind of intellectual agendas, teaching classes in moral philosophy and political economy at universities. Um, and that's where maybe the theory of moral sentiments comes in a little bit more.
0: Well, you you have a line um, about uh, the way some of these things are being in, uh, received that I wonder if it is more broadly telling even of the whole way the Scottish enlightenment was being received by American founders. You said that they were searching for moral instruction that was independent of theology, but supportive of religion, scientifically derived and straightforwardly practicable. And and I wonder if this is where Smith was attractive to some in the American experiment in that they wanted moral foundation, There was a fondness for religious liberty. And and yet, uh, post-Hume and post-Enlightenment, they wanted to intellectualize some of these commitments, including economic ones. And Smith gave them a way to sort of juxtapose moral philosophy with economic commitments that was not specifically theological. Is is that a, a fair interpretation of what some of the traction of Smith was? And yeah. uh, representative of what was happening even in other areas of thought in, in American founding.
1: Absolutely, I think you hit the nail on the head on that one. And the way that I characterize this in the book is is thinking about Enlightenment not as a specific moment in time or even any one movement, but but a whole way of thinking. And I'm I'm drawing a lot on the work of. Um, Carolyn Winterer, who's an American intellectual historian and and my former advisor, and she really thinks about how this enlightened way of approaching things, right, based on reason rather than superstition and religion, but nevertheless supportive of a kind of you can say, deistic view of the world, um, a very progressive view of history, and um, a human-centered world, right? That humans had agency. It wasn't just God making everything happen, but that humans could impact the world around them and shape the world and improve it. And, and, and Smith's two works are part of this larger, enlightened way of thinking Um, One center of which is in the Scottish Enlightenment and kind of diffuses. um, Certainly, there's a direct connection between the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers and American Enlightened thinkers at the time, Um, but it's a sensibility about how to study the principles of sociability, of morality, and also of politics. Right. There's an enlightened way to think about the origins of our moral behavior. There's an enlightened way to think about how to manage um, national wealth. And there's an enlightened way to go about being a statesman. And all of those things are not separate disciplines, but, but part of the same, um, I would say, kind of ethos of the time.
0: Yeah. So when you move forward into the chapter of Apostle on free trade, um, it, it suddenly appeared to me, uh, occurred to me, that there was a tension taking place in the nineteenth century that you could have changed the names of the actors, changed the prose of some of the the quotes, and it could have sounded eerily familiar to um, debates yeah. taking place right now, yeah, where absolutely. where certain principles and ideology are pitted against certain quote-unquote real-life experience and that there was this really popular movement to say that Smith was too rooted in theory and didn't know what really uh, happened in practice. Mm-hmm. And that, that was said as an argument against free trade. It was a, a mercantilist argument trying to um, uh, create a sort of not only populist sentiment, but a, almost... Um, you know, unfair competitive advantage by portraying something as just unrealistic or undoable in the real world—not not totally different from where, the way a lot of people talk today about, let's say, American trade with China, for example—that in mm-hmm. sounds good on paper, but in real life, we know it hasn't worked that way, so forth and so on. Was um, but then that is only one tension—the free trade tension—and this is the area that maybe was most new to me from your book. The interconnection with slavery. And what I mean by that is that the alignment, I've always known that those who favored tariffs and didn't, and those who favored slavery and didn't, that these were, this is a, for whatever reason, oft ignored correlation in American history about the Civil War. Um, and maybe not ignored intellectually, but ignored at a popular level. Like it isn't discussed mm-hmm. in eighth grade. Maybe mm-hmm. grad students understand it. Did Smith become a foil in that debate in the sense that, again, it allowed people to hold on to the part that they wanted and be, and that because Smith was a free trader who therefore was creating an intellectual argument that those could use against protective tariffs, but the fact of the matter was he also was an abolitionist. And so people were sort of selective in the way that they um, appealed to Smith for the basis of their argument in nineteenth-century debate.
1: Yeah, this is a great question and a really interesting topic that I think is underexplored, um, and something that I barely scratched the surface on. But it's it's been interesting to hear the number of people who've really kind of picked up on that connection because it, like you said, it struck it strikes people as new, right? That this there's this nexus between arguments of free trade and arguments of for or against slavery, right? we We normally think that, oh, if you're in support of free labor, free soil, free free movement, then you must be an abolitionist. And um, what's interesting in the antebellum debates is that the the majority of the like really hardline free trade speeches that I'm recounting are coming from people in like the cotton south. and and what I suggest is that this this way of reasoning, about free trade as being the vision for the national economy is is an implicit argument about um, the the kind of the spread of slavery, right? And and Mm -hmm. the Southern mode of political economy at the time, right? If you say that um, the national economy, America as a whole, not just the, the cotton South states, but the whole nation should be a nation of free trade, you're supporting (laughs) this idea that in order to have a flourishing national economy, um, that this is going to entail the spread of, 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 you know, the, basically the slave plantation system in which you have, um, an economy dominated by the exportation of raw goods like cotton or tobacco, to manufacturing centers overseas, or maybe to the north, um, that are going to um, manufacture textiles and linens, etc. So, so um, I think it's, it's complicated because you have competing visions of political economy that fall on regional lines both appealing to a way of reasoning that they think is grounded in Smith's political economy and it skirts around or intentionally occludes the issue of talking about slavery. So um, another way you can think about this is that political economy becomes a way for competing positions to um, basically talk about their vision of the national economy without talking about slavery. Um, it's such a slavery is such a um, polarizing issue in the in, in the 19 er, sorry 1830s and 1840s, there are actually gag rules are placed in Congress for a short period of time that like any mention of of kind of anti-slavery bills would get immediately silenced. So so talking about it in the language of kind of oh a different vision of national political economy Kind of sends a message about whether or not slavery um, is going to continue to exist in the
0: country, and and so I, um, I I think that the way you go in the book from the debates pre slavery pre Civil War and then the the post war um, debate that really became quite significant around trade and as uh, the Industrial Revolution is 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 kicking in the the heat. Both around the enthusiasm, both for the supporters of Smith that were celebrating what was then the centennial anniversary of the release of Wealth of Nations, and then those like like Eli who became these just significant public critics, all of a sudden the book goes into just this mode of um, revealing the underlying tension and the selectivity of interpreting Smith, those biases on steroids (laughs) <laughs> and And the key the area, what you I loved this this notion, the French connection thesis, that there had been a um separation uh, um between theory of moral sentiments and wealth of nations um that that uh, Smith had somehow shifted away from moral philosophy. and th- this uh, you also talked about how in the academy, um I was intrigued by. Harvard, and 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 the different schools that were using, whether it was Wealth of Nations or David Ricardo, or Jean-Baptiste say, as their major textbooks in the early 19th century, but by the latter portion of the century, had effectively disconnected political economy from moral philosophy. And for myself, so I'm throwing my own biases, because so far I'm just an objective interviewer, but I'm one who is a deep, committed, adherent to free enterprise, who deeply believes it needs to be connected and ought to be intertwined with an anthropology and a moral philosophy. And part of me wondered if that became a major disconnect, not just in how we historically understand Adam Smith, but how we as a nation think about economics, that that academic disconnection of moral philosophy from political economy was not merely interesting as what it does to Adam Smith, but what it does to our nation's relationship with these disciplines. Maybe talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really great point, And you put it so nicely. Um, this is a really complicated question. There has been a movement recently, at least from my view, a, a big push to reintegrate economics with political economy or the mushrooming of programs in politics, philosophy and economics or ethics and economics. And I think it speaks to that, um, that, that instinct that you have, right. That, that economics somehow needs to be moored in an ethical orientation or a more, um, a, a deeper study. in, like you said, anthropology, moral philosophy, psychology, um, sociology, etc. cetera. Um, that, that, neoclassical economics is insufficient um, for our our present predicaments, if you will.
0: So where does that- And maybe self-consciously so, that neoclassical economics is almost um, explicitly hostile to the idea of anthropology and the, the human person being rooted in the study because their commitment to a heavily econometric
1: Sure. View of economics is, kind of is homo economicus. Is. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you're absolutely right to suggest that a not only is there a longer history of this debate and a much longer history of the entanglement and ultimately disentanglement of economics from its umbrella discipline, moral philosophy but also that Smith somehow can serve as a useful foil for that disentanglement, right? That here is somebody who wrote a book on moral philosophy and also a book on political economy. He saw the two things as clearly related. Therefore, so should we. I think those are completely valid um, and, and obviously very relevant readings, but I also want to kind of complicate that a little bit more and contextualize some of those features. So, in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning of academic political economy, which I talk about in um, some of the some of the bits in the founding chapter, but the chapter after that, kind of on the rise of academic political economy in the early nineteenth century, this idea that political economy is a branch of moral philosophy is not the same thing as saying political economy is ethics or is ethical, <laughs> but rather that instruction in the science of political economy was seen as a form of moral instruction and moral elevation. Back in the day, the only people who were going to colleges and universities were the, the elite, the educated men who would eventually become statesmen or lawyers, ministers, educators, right? They're elite. They're going to elite institutions to basically become the elite. And it was seen as absolutely necessary for them to kind of learn a form of moral elevation through through whatever discipline they were studying, whether it was theology or political economy or moral philosophy or back in the day, a a field called intellectual philosophy. So if you look at a textbook like Francis Whelan's Elements of Political Economy published in 1838, you'll see these references to things like, you know, studying political economy basically reveals God's kind of perfect ordering of the world, right? It was basically another way to kind of access, um, access religion um, through a kind of secular means. So I think what I'm trying to say here with all of these examples is that thinking about political philosophy as enmeshed with moral philosophy is not necessarily the same thing as thinking that somehow political economy is always um, ethical, but that it has a kind of very specific historical meaning when we, when, when you look at its origins, especially in the 19th century. Now that, that begins to, that begins to change, right? Mid 19th century, especially at post kind of 1865, you get um, increased disciplinary specialization. So political economy starts to separate itself from that kind of like moral elevation view of the world um, and and more towards things that are very, very practically oriented like railroads and labor movements and tariff history, um, trade. So you get, with increasing specialization, you also get professionalization and a much more self-conscious view that political economy is this modern science. It once had its origins in in moral philosophy, but no longer needs to. And um, then there's an additional debate about whether political economy should have um, as its mission, the kind of like abstract, formal, and... um, A kind of like theoretical approach to understanding the laws of economics versus a much more kind of historical, you could say, inductive with a social ethical orientation towards solving real problems. And that's the debate that I chart in that chapter that I think yeah. you were res- referencing, right? With like Richard T. Lee and, yeah. and um, Edwin Robert A. Seligman, <laughs> right? This cohort of students who go study in Germany and they come back and they have this very um, strong, like, socialist orientation towards economics. And I say socialist not to mean kind of Soviet command style economics, but that the unit of analysis for these economists is society as a whole rather than the kind of economic atomistic individual. So this becomes a big debate in American economics in the late 19th century, right, about how to do economics. And there's certainly normative content at stake, right? There's um, what's at stake is really like what should the field of economics be doing <laughs> and how should we go about doing it? And that, I think, shapes how they're reading Smith at the time.
0: But it seems to me that that debate that you so um, clearly lay out, and it's fascinating, particularly in the German school. Um, in the 19th century. And so you're right, there is a a socialist adaptation, but the word is a bit less pejorative philosophically than to where we go in the 20th century Mm -hmm. and less totalitarian. But nevertheless, if we're willing to disconnect the field of economics from moral philosophy and from theology, where I would argue that the unit of analysis, either being um, an atomistic individual or the collective, that um, there are certain theological or moral schools that might suggest it's a false dilemma, that w- that our objectives in economics ought to be a human flourishing at an individual level and a societal level, and that the political debate of the 20th century between the collective versus the individual that we now think of as sort of a Randian versus Marxian divide, mm. that really that was a natural progression in their debate because of the fact that it was rooted in this ultimately moral or, or philosophical disagreement, and, and that what the German school was debating and how they, they absorbed Smith. Um, And and getting to that place of unit of analysis, as you say, being the society, the collective versus the individual, it was really revealing of a fundamental anthropological difference that perhaps everybody being so selective in how they um, utilized Adam Smith left them without a way to combat because... Uh, that the, the, they had abandoned the discussion of true moral philosophy.
1: Yeah, and and the um, the readings of Smith that emerge from this period are really interesting because on the one hand, you have this moment of intense like uh, scholarly flourishing <laughs> in terms of. Their approach to a really historical version of Adam Smith, right? So they're no longer using Smith just as a puppet for free trade, which is that whole process that we talked about earlier, right? Like Smith suddenly just becomes a mascot for free traders, um, the kind of tagline. And, and I'll
0: I'll use your own I'll use your own verbiage from from the book because I think this is ultimately the the uh, great summary takeaway of what the mm-hmm. book is posing is that modern appreciators of Adam Smith have to ask, is Smith's value symbolic of laissez-faire, free trade, etc., or is it objectively historical, linking moral philosophy and classical economics? And that is sort of the underlying tension that your book Explores,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and what's interesting about this late nineteenth century moment, right, with this kind of new generation of progressive economists coming back, you have this moment where, on the one hand, um there's there's an intense in, intensification of interest in Smith as a historical object, right? They're trying to show that, like against these shortened for foreshortened versions of Smith as a mascot of free trade, he actually was a historical thinker. He didn't think that laissez-faire economics um, would always work. That's in fact, he, you know, he's not a kind of doctrinaire advocate of laissez-faire. And that in fact, he was um, a very humanitarian thinker. And what's interesting about those readings of Smith, especially coming from people like Seligman and Ely, who do this kind of subtle reading of Smith as um, Somebody who was on the side of workers rather than capital, somebody who was a historical thinker himself as in used historical method to understand economics is that they are aligning Smith with their own version of what economics should be doing and how the American political economy should be arranged. Right. It should be one that should be attentive to the concerns of workers rather than rather than management, um, it should, economics as a field should be more historically oriented rather than kind of general and theoretical, and it should be inductive rather than deductive. Yeah. But they're doing it in this incredibly detailed and sophisticated way of reading Smith, right? They, these are not ideologues <laughs> who are kind of going in and presenting really, really caricatured versions of Smith. They're reading his biographies, They're editing kind of, um, you know, encyclopedic essays um, about Smith. They're reading the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. Um, But what's interesting is that they're still um, kind of lopping off the theory of moral sentiments to some degree. So Ely does this when he's editing the world's best literature um, entry on Smith. He's like, yeah, the theory of moral sentiments is a pretty interesting book. You know, he has some stuff on prudence, but ultimately not that philosophically interesting, right? The version of Smith where we get the humanitarian version of Smith is still centered on the wealth of nations. So, you know, as as like um, sophisticated as their readings are, there nevertheless is this emphasis strictly on Smith's political economy rather than his moral philosophy.
0: Is it fair to say that that's a consistent theme um, up till this day, but particularly as you then get into 20th century uh, Chicago School and, and even um, some Austrian interpretations of Smith that everybody seemed to be, everyone who who is a study of your book, from the founders to the German school to, to American progressives in the 19th century and on into the 20th, everyone seemed to impose into Smith the parts of him that were convenient to their own ideology. And that Smith was a good, uh, he was useful in that regard because he he did um, provide a bite for much of the commitments of Chicago school economics. He did provide a bite for some of the moral and social emphases that some others like, like Eli or Seligman had in their agenda and and that was the thing that I found interesting that I never I didn't come away, I'm a, I'm a devoted disciple of Milton Friedman and, and Friedrich Hayek. And I didn't find their treatment of Smith as unfair. I just found your book as exposing it as selective. And yet I found almost everyone's treatment of Smith selective.
1: Yeah, you can put it another way, right? There's a Smith for everybody. There's a Smith for all seasons, right? If you're a progressive, there's a Smith for that. If you're a libertarian, there's a Smith for that. Um, The real question I think is is not um, who's right, but why do we get these selective readings of Smith, right? That's what this book is about. It's about why does Smith become such a useful um, tool? Why does he become such a powerful weapon to be used in these multiple ways. And one of the main ambitions of the work is again, to kind of not pass judgment on on the different readings, um, but to really show that there are, there are kind of historical contingencies that throw Smith into high relief on key dimensions. So in the 19th century, it's debates over free trade. Um, in In the late 19th century, It's these methodological debates about the scope and nature of economics and in the kind of post-depression, post-Cold War period, it's, again, debates about the the content of a new liberalism um, and and how you maintain a free society um, that, that throw certain aspects of Smith into high relief that allow... Certain groups of people, right? Like maybe it's the Chicago School in the post depression and post war period, to really latch on to a particular selective dimension of Smith, and then and then really elevate that to kind of a a, um, a very um, salient reading of Smith for their time. And you know, I, I try to be very careful about. Being as kind of historically set, treating treating all these different readings as kind of historical creations rather than as things that I'm trying to, you know, pass judgment on or adjudicate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been interesting because I think certain readers think... I'm too critical of the Chicago school. And then other people think I'm like not critical enough, right? (laughs) Because they really think that the Chicago school did a ton of violence to Smith and they're obviously wrong. And how could I possibly treat them so charitably? And then other readers think, well, obviously the Chicago school is right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I I think, um, I don't know if you saw the, the treatment national review has given so far in, in response even to the wall street journals treatment, Mm -hmm. But much like your point of some of these commentators throughout history on Smith, the modern commentators on this development and this historical study that your book is about, they have their own biases and agendas and whatnot. And what I'll tell you from my vantage point, being more of an ideologue than a historian on it, is I think the historical aspects and study of how Smith has been understood and interpreted shed light on where we still have issues to wrestle with ideologically. You didn't deal much with Manger, but you did a little. And and it was very telling because myself as someone with strong Austrian sympathies, um, I've always felt that the hole in the Austrian understanding of human action and praxeology is epistemological, that there isn't enough D- diving into the foundations of this morality or or, or knowledge that um, is necessary philosophically to formulate an economic worldview. And and so this disconnect between moral philosophy and political economy that we're dealing with remained a whole even for those that were, were asking for a greater understanding of human action from Menger to von Mises to Hayek. And, and so while I'm sympathetic to where they were going economically, I, I think it exposes a, a kind of shortcoming, um, it, again, resolving some of those either epistemological or moral questions. And the, and the Chicago School, I, I think the way you did it was very fair. It didn't seem to me you were passing judgment, but it was historically noting um, that there is a portion, like you say, a Smith for everyone, <laughs> there is absolutely in Smith an incredible foundation that could be used by much of the presuppositions of the Chicago movement, but they may not want to have to interact with theory of moral sentiments to the same degree. And, and what I hope comes out of the book is sort of the way you concluded it. Um, I'm pretty sympathetic to where Arthur Brooks went with things. And I certainly believe Gertrude and and Irving um, referring to Irving crystal that they were exposing um, a real need for where conservatism or, or free market orthodoxy is, is going to have to go to, to ultimately wrestle with some of these great moral and social dimensions. I, I just think that everything that people were debating for 200 years is still on the table now. And having a historical reality about it, as your book is seeks to do, a Smith can only help facilitate that objective.
1: Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, and you know, I, I'm I'm sure that you and I, as we're doing right now, can have a really great and civil and fun conversation, even if we disagree politically on kind of where we should go as a country. And I think Smith is sure. such a, a an interesting figure to have those conversations with and through and against, because as this reception history, as I've tried to show in the reception history, at least I hope I, I did this, is that Smith really becomes this like vehicle for articulating the different dimensions of of these debates, right? And And we see them resurface again and again. So the little examples that I gave at the end, right, of Arthur Brooke saying, right, the theory of moral sentiments is about the kind of morality that we need to have in order to have free enterprise, but Obama kind of giving a different version, which is, um, look, this this shouldn't be an ideological question. Even Smith, the father of free market economics, said yeah. that you know we basically have to take care of the poor, which. You know the, the implication of his speech there—that mention there—is that the federal government ought to be responsible for taking care of the the worst off in society, right? There's an obligation for the government to achieve the ends of social and distributive justice. Two very, very different views about the so-called morality of capitalism, both appealing to Adam Smith as as a way to justify those concerns. And we also see a version of that with the neoconservative debates, right? That they, they felt that kind of the neoliberal approach of the Chicago school was kind of too economistic and cold, if you will. And it really needed a kind of moral advocacy as well, right? Traditional institutions and traditional morality needed to be the kind of nest for a free market society. And what's so interesting is that people today are returning to Smith in those ways, but from wildly different parts of the political spectrum, right? And I'm not here to speculate on many of my colleagues' own political positions, but Smith has once again become this resource for figuring out, um, again, like, what are the moral causes and consequences of economic inequality, right? What are the obligations and does the state have a duty to achieve the ends of distributive justice? Can we find arguments for that in Smith um, or, or, um, you know, something totally different about the kind of ethical basis of capitalism. And um, as a kind of another toy example, um, I, I talked about this in another talk I gave recently um, just last December, right, amidst the kind of crisis of averting a national railway strike Nancy Pelosi kind of gives a press conference in between um, the the kind of House and the Senate voting on this bill. And she says, you know, Adam Smith (laughs) wrote this great book, The Wealth of Nations, which many people think is the kind of gospel of laissez-faire. But he also wrote another book. And I was like, wait a second. I can't believe she's doing this. She goes, he also wrote another book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments which is about a more compassionate capitalism. She says, it's about how the strength of our workers and the strength of our economy go hand in hand. And I listened to this clip and I was like, completely shocked, but not surprised at all, right? Here you have somebody who's representing the political left saying that the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, when read together, provide a vision for a kind of more progressive version of, of capitalism that's more attentive to the needs of the workers. And you know to be very, very clear for our listeners, <laughs> like that is not what the theory of moral sentiments is about. Um, it is, it's not a book yeah. about capitalism. It's not a book about commercial society. It's, it's about this narrow kind of debate in 18th century moral and intellectual philosophy about the origins of, of morality. Um, but what's so interesting is, as again, kind of I said about like my approach to this whole project is that I'm really interested in, in showing that there are moments in our history where Smith and certain aspects of Smith's ideas get thrown into high relief and suddenly we have these conversations where we can't help but turn to Smith for guidance on certain issues. And, and that's what's so interesting, right? Is that there is this kind of Smith for all seasons um, and and being aware of how he's kind of getting enlisted into these debates and really comparing that with what Smith actually said, I think can be just really illuminating.
0: Well, I, I agree entirely in that illumination has been uh, my, much served by your wonderful new book, I, I think that um, attempts to refer to theory of moral sentiments as a broad, general, vanilla desire for morality to be part of economic conversation um, are insufficient and, uh, and attempts to appeal to wealth of nations as a handbook of, of whether it's laissez-faire or even more specifically libertarian uh, economic commitments is insufficient that there's just a real need for more not only academic and intellectual but but um ideological clarity and and Mm -hmm. sincerity in what we're going for out of our study of adam smith and your book has just done a wonderful job um to help facilitate that cause i can't commend the book uh to our listeners enough adam smith's america as, as she said, it, it doesn't require everyone to agree on the different conclusions. If, the, if there's a Smith for everyone, that means that some of you may find certain things that you like, and others may find things they don't. Um, and, and those of you that listen to Capital Record know where, where my commitments lie, but there's so much beauty to derive from Smith's work. And, and I think Glory's book has done a wonderful service to those of us who want to understand it. Uh, in a historical context more objectively. Gori, thank you not only for your book, but thank you for spending time with us here on Capitol Record.
1: Yeah, thanks again so much for having me.
0: Well this was this was a wonderful discussion and obviously a bit different than the way we we go with with certain things at times. I think that um Glory is a, a serious scholar and and a historian that that was doing a wonderful job presenting some of these actual historical tensions uh, that have existed over time and helping us to analyze how they came to be. And I don't think it is a lot more complicated than concluding that much like so much uh, else, people uh, take what they want to take and leave what they want to leave. And that it, what her line about there's an Adam Smith for everyone, um, this is kind of what cognitive you know, biases are, are prone to do. And even with a major historical figure like Adam Smith, that there is a history of people deriving and extracting what is convenient to their own worldview. I will say that I think one of the big needs we have for those coming from an economic school of thought that I come from, that um, you could you could argue the Acton Institute or or in a lot of ways, much of what National Review believes, those who have a distinct moral philosophy, uh, those that do hold to a certain anthropology, myself being an adherent to the Christian worldview, I think it is necessary to recognize that Smith's um, empiricism and skepticism, his fondness of David Hume and the Scottish Enlightenment, um, as intellectually um, uh, contributory as that was, that it did leave that question of where a theology at the root of uh, uh, economic commitment That it left a hole and that there is so much we can benefit from Smith without having to pretend that he had a holistic Christian anthropology laid out, not just in Wealth of Nations, but even in theory of moral sentiments, rooting moral philosophy and the concept of sympathy. There's a lot we learn from it, but maybe there's a lot that is um, not addressed. And that uh, more holistic uh, development of, of Smith's thought would be useful, including at times a critique. I think that historically, the desire to separate in the academy, in higher education, to separate an understanding of the economic social science from ethics and moral philosophy was disastrous. That could you could view it as a turning point in the way we understood economics and that the Austrian school's proper commitment to an a priori understanding of human action at the root of economics, but doing so without a distinct epistemology, a theory of knowledge that could be rooted to a biblical anthropology, I think was a very bad idea. That And not because it was wrong, but because it was incomplete. It did not um, root itself in a thorough enough foundation that would allow us to um, ultimately have the right critique against Marx and the right critique against Rand. And that's where I think we stand now. So much to benefit from in the historical study of all these people. I, I am as big a Friedrich Hayek fan as one could be. I'm a big as big an Adam Smith fan as one could be. But we have more work to do And we don't need to be selective in our understanding of some of these great historical figures. We can be comprehensive, uh, understand and appreciate the whole historical context, but then look to do better. Look to do the additional philosophy, the additional economic analysis necessary um, for even more comprehensive application into our aim, which is human flourishing. That that tension that the German school wanted to create with Adam Smith, that there is, on one hand, those committed to an atomistic individualism, and on the other hand, those that want the collective to be the unit of analysis in, in social and economic study, that ultimately, only our anthropology that recognizes the human person as being uniquely dignified as a creation of God and recognizes the social and communal aspect of um, human nature, that only that anthropology is equipped to to synthesize this tension and put forward a proper economic application uh, to meet the needs of the human race. Thank you for listening to Capital Record. Thank you for your um, careful attention to all the things we care about as we go forward seeking a free and virtuous society.